0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. Uh, Just just, uh, stop and take it from the top. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey guys, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. This week I was joined by Nate Heller. He's a composer known for Diary of a Teenage Girl, Can You Ever Forgive Me? and the new movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which just premiered at 10th. We talked all about his methods for creating a score, his work with his sister, Marielle we talked about influences and process. So give it a listen. Hey Nate, thanks for joining me today.
1: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Um, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Just uh, doing a little baby duty here in LA. Wonderful. Catching a little break here at na- at uh, nap time to talk to you.
0: Wonderful. Thanks for joining me. Um, so uh, I'm just curious and uh, as I'd mentioned to you before, I've not yet had a composer on the podcast yet, so I would love to chat with you about um, how you got started in film and then eventually get into, you know, your process and uh, all of your um, work that you've done on certain films. So um, how did you get started in um, music to start and then um, what was your segue into film?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I've always been like super into music since I was a little kid. Um, You know, I I was in a boys' chorus that my mother sort of forced me into, um, and piano lessons from a a, a really early age.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And then, you know, when I hit my uh, tween years, I, I got really into you know, rock music and the band thing. So I kind of segued into guitar and, and playing in and playing in groups and things like that. So that's sort of where, uh, where it started for me. Um, and we have very supportive Bay area parents who, you know, were, were willing to indulge any kind of creative impulses we had. So that was great to have that support. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I sort of got into my college years, I was definitely like very focused on pop music and playing in bands. Um, So I was playing in a couple different groups and uh, studying music at school at UCSD. Um, And I kind of just realized that if i declared a music minor i'd be able to sort of worm my way into the recording studios on campus mm-hmm. so that was sort of how i um how i came to be studying music um and yeah i pretty much spent my 20s uh you know playing in bands producing music um touring a lot around the west coast um and sort of feeling like I was maybe not making it, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think it was it was a, in the late two thousands. It was kind of a time where it felt like you kind of had to like get out on the road and mm-hmm. and play a whole bunch of shows. And we sort of felt uh, our the groups that I was in. We sort of felt that things were moving towards the online. You know, like let's do blogs, let's do Tumblr posts, and little private online concerts and things. Um, so yeah, I was feeling like it might be a little bit of a dead end to continue doing the band thing. Um, Hmm. and that's sort of when my first scoring opportunity came up. Um, my older sister, Marielle Heller was directing her first movie, uh, which was called the diary of a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. And, um, she basically kind of reached out to me and said, you know, there's this scene in the movie, one of the last scenes, where they, they go to a bar and there's a band playing in the background. And in, in the script, it was Arkrum, the cartoonist's band. Um, and she was like, do you want to write something to sort of go in the background? You know, sort of like Big Sister throwing me a little bone. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll get you a couple hundred bucks if, if you write something original to go in here. Um, so I was like, yeah, of course, I, I totally will. Um, and I, I knew the story. I had read the graphic novel, uh, A Diary of a Teenage Girl. So I wrote an original song that was kind of inspired by the story. Um, and maybe I, I think I had gone a little above and beyond what she was asking for. You know, she was kind of wanting something to put in the background and... She was just so happy with what I had done that she took it to producers and, you know, they were sort of like, this is great. We're going to feature this in the movie. We're going to have you on camera. Oh, cool. So I was like, oh, cool. I get to be in the movie and singing on stage. Um, And then as they were going along with their shoot, you know, I think it started occurring to my sister. uh, Maybe I can, you know, wriggle my way in here and and get – made a chance at doing some of the scoring work, Um, which I I think she thought she was being kind of slick uh, (laughs) by asking me, like, do you want to try putting some music to the scene and and just see how it goes? Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of felt that I I knew what was going on, which was she was going to take what I showed her and and see if I could sort of audition for that role. So I, I think I scored maybe two or three cues for the movie, That they had had temp music in. Um, And it was like, I had never put music to picture other than, you know, making a music video and shooting
0: it after. Okay, I was gonna ask about that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it was always the other way for me. It was always like, start with like a basic pop song. And then extrapolate out, how do we record it? And then the last thing is, you know, making a visual to go with it, making a music video. Mm -hmm. So this was totally new for me. And I mean, it just totally opened me up to a new uh, sort of path that I could take to make this music work kind of work for me, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it clicked for me pretty quickly that I I had the if not the skill, I kind of had the intuition for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think I think as far as myself as an artist goes, I'm really like a collaborative person. I really love like the give and take of the creative process. So with film, I just found that immediately. is like, okay, here's a rough edit of a scene and we're trying to take it somewhere else emotionally and the music has to help get us there. And that was, to me, just like this fascinating puzzle that I'd never really considered before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I kind of set to work... Um, oh, sorry, that was the dog. <laughs> I kind of set to work, um, you know trying to score a couple of the scenes that she had kicked my way Mm -hmm. and uh you know I felt pretty good about what I did so I, I sent it back to her and she took it to her producers and they sort of said you know the job is yours if you want it that's great yeah so that was that was kind of my my falling ass backwards into this, um, and yeah, I just kind of haven't looked back. Um,
0: so so that was my, so go ahead. Sorry.
1: So that was my very first thing. And I, I just completely had to figure it out as I went along.
0: Gotcha. Well, so for Diary of a Teenage Girl, did they send you just like a couple of pre cut scenes that were still maybe in progress, uh, in the edit or, what do they have a picture lock and they sent you certain things that they're like, try these things out and we'll see how it goes?
1: Well, this is one of the unique things about working with, you know, a family member mm-hmm. is that, you know, and I just finished my third film with my sister. I've been really lucky to be able to be in like super early on her edits. So for Diary, I'm pretty sure when I came on, they were not picture locked yet. Mm-hmm it was actually an interesting time, kind of transitional time in both of our lives. My now wife and I had just moved out to Brooklyn. Hmm. Mari was editing the movie in what would become our apartment. um, (laughs) And she was pregnant. So we basically had just moved to Brooklyn. We were all living in this house together. The movie was being edited in that house. And as things would sort of change and evolve in the edit there, I would then, you know, go back to the music and adjust things and, you know, sort of make things tighter to, to match the cut. So I've been fortunate to not be just handed something that's picture locked when I work with her, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other skill set, I think. And I think there are other composers who are great at going in and and uh, seeing a cut of something that's picture locked and temped all the way through with with temp score and just replacing it and doing, it, doing a perfect job. I think for me, I, I really relish the experience of being able to come in to something that's not finished mm. and, you know, influence the cut. There have been some moments where if I have a piece of music that I've written um, on Can You Ever Forgive Me, there was a piece of music that I wrote before they even started shooting mm. that ultimately they cut a scene to the demo, and and then we sort of adjusted. So that's fun when the music can maybe help dictate the pace or the tone of a scene um, if you're in there early enough while things are still sort of fluid.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Do you recall um, which scenes were the first that you put music to for Diary of a Teenage Girl?
1: I do recall that one of the first ones is a scene where Minnie is plunged underwater.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's a very like ethereal kind of track.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think that that was, to me, I felt like that was kind of uh, a little bit of a breakthrough for me to sort of go like, oh, we can take these sounds and sort of filter them to make them feel... Like they're underwater, and that really plays off what we're seeing. I mean, I I must be such a dipshit that I never, as a musician, never really considered like, oh yeah, music is important to film. Like I love music, I love film, but I didn't really think about the interplay between the two and sort of how they get made. Um, so yeah, that scene was definitely one of the one of the early ones, and then I think there was definitely some uh, guitar-based music. Mm -hmm. Like, it might have been the scene where she's looking in the mirror and sort of contemplating her identity um, with a little bit of a voiceover. So I I think those may have been the first two that I sort of took a crack
0: at. That's so cool. Yeah, it must be kind of a weird shift in perspective of, of film then, too to go and watch things and go, and just see them in a different way
1: totally i mean you know once you make the sausage i i think you can't and i mean this is everyone i know who works in film it's like you can't watch a movie together with them because they spend the whole time either picking apart or analyzing <laughs> oh how did they get that shot uh, mm-hmm. oh man that's really cool how did they do that um you know, or maybe, maybe you can, but just be prepared for that experience of, of analyzing. So yeah, I definitely now have a much greater appreciation for how things get made. Um, and especially now coming out of uh, a bigger movie where I worked with an orchestra, like understanding the whole process of how you go from a demo to that is Mm. like, you know, it's, it's, It's opened me up a lot.
0: Well, and I want to talk about that for sure. Um, So so on these first – so first I say, like, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and then um, did you go straight into Can You Ever Forgive Me?
1: Um, I actually did a – let's see. I got hired from a movie and then fired – Oh, okay. um, which is kind of a rite of passage for both composers and editors. Mm-hmm. I feel like as I get further down this uh, down this route, I'm learning that composers and editors are, are really the ones, you, you know, you don't work in this industry until you've gotten fired. So mm-hmm. I got fired from a feature, and then I I was kind of brought on to this documentary feature called Circus Kid, where they had... They had had someone record score, Mm -hmm. and he was essentially a touring musician who then was out on the road and otherwise occupied while they were still cutting, and they felt that they needed some additional music. So I came into that uh, and essentially took what was there and sort of added to it. And my approach was like, you have all of this wonderful kind of like live instrumentation doing kind of mirroring the circus-y theme. It's about this kid who grew up in the Pickle Family Circus in San Francisco. It's actually a really great film. Mm -hmm. I recommend it if you can find it. Um, Awesome. And so I kind of brought in this second world of that sort of ethereal, more emotional music to sort of play off what was there. And then in a few instances, I sort of, with the previous composer's blessing, took a few of his cues and sort of embellished and and reimagined them. Um, so that was my next feature. I did a little short in between the two as well. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then Can You Ever Forgive Me came up. Um, and yeah, I think that was maybe two years or so after, after Diary. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at that point I was still living in Brooklyn. Um, and again, they were getting ready to shoot that one. And I sort of knew that it was coming down the pike and Mm -hmm. that it was, you know, a little bit more of a serious uh, situation just because it was going to be produced by Fox Searchlight. Mm -hmm. Um, So I pretty much like got my hands on the script as soon as I could and just started writing material because I knew that I was going to have to pitch some kind of vision to them.
0: And that one's not Um, based on anything. That one was an original script, but it's about a real person.
1: It's an original script based on the autobiography of Lee Israel. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my sis loves she really gravitates towards based on a true story and mm-hmm. movies that have really long titles seems to be her other <laughs> <laughs> constant for some reason. Um, yeah, so this is based on this uh, real author who lived in New York mm-hmm. and in her fledgling writing career, finds a path for herself as a forger, you know, doing mm-hmm. literary forgeries. Um, it's so, a fascinating
0: story and film for the ma- for that matter.
1: Oh, I'm glad you think so. I think it's a really fascinating story, too. And I think Lee is such a such a cool, unique character. It's uh, one of
0: those films that um, you kind of... like. I heard about it, and I was like, I'd like to see this. And I'm also a big Richard E. Grant fan. So mm-hmm. I wanted to go and watch it, but um, I didn't get to until I was on the plane to, to, uh, to L.A. And so I, oh, wow. I regret to say like, I watched it on a plane... But then uh, it recently came on HBO and I had to watch it again because it was just, it's really good and everybody's
1: good. That's awesome. That's awesome. It was so great for Richard too. And like, I got to do a couple of press events in LA Mm -hmm. that he was at, and he was seriously on Cloud Nine. He was just like, I mean, this guy's been toiling away for years doing amazing work. And I feel like this film, like, suddenly brought this wave of recognition for him. And he was just having so much fun basking in it and Mm -hmm. sharing the work. It was really fun to see.
0: Um, But uh, sorry, you were talking about the process and I interrupted you.
1: (laughs) Oh no, no, totally. Um, Yeah. So when that one started being made, um, I sort of knew that like, I didn't have anything in my reel that would convince you know mm. the the suits at fox that i had the you know the skill set to do the job mm-hmm. so i pretty much was just like let me get this script let me get a feel for the character and there were there were a lot of notes about what lee liked and what she was interested in and the things that she hated and the things that sort of tickled her and there was a lot of reference to music that she was into in the script so i kind of went down this rabbit hole of of exploring all of these all all of these jazz artists that she was into mm. like blossom Deary and Chet Baker and all these people and i sort of you know had a conversation with mari where i said you know i don't know what you're feeling for the score of this but i feel like it should sort of live in that new york jazz world a little bit because there was such a feeling too of like, we just want this movie to feel like New York in the nineties or New York anytime, just that kind of timeless New York feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to my mind, I think that jazz that, that Lee really loved was a good place to start. And I kind of hadn't really been playing jazz since, you know, high school high school band essentially Mm -hmm. um so I sort of knew I had my work cut out for me so as they were you know getting ready to shoot and starting shooting I was sort of you know um taking it upon myself to go in the studio with some musicians who I thought would be good players for the score if I could get the job Mm -hmm. and and you know I kind of did the same thing with diary but on a bigger scale of okay, I'm just going to cut some demos here and see what happens with them. And some of those, some of those sessions ended up actually being used in the final score. Wow. Um, And, you know, I think by the time I was sort of, you know, unpacking the files of what I had recorded and what I had captured, Mari was partway through her edit. Mm -hmm. So she was able to sort of fly in some of these things and, and test them against the picture. And you know we f- we felt like oh there's there's something here this this could be special and let's let's pitch it so yeah at that point we kind of pitched to the studio um, this is sort of our vision of of this world of music that's going to accompany this film and please <laughs> please give me the job
0: <laughs> right so so what was that experience like then um, getting going from Diary of a Teenage Girl where you were just kind of getting notes from your sister to going to the studio and getting maybe suggestions or ideas from them.
1: Right. That's a very generous way of putting it, suggestions (laughs) or ideas. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's totally, totally a different experience making, you know. Diary was a, a total indie. Mari had complete creative control over it. And then it went to Sundance and got picked up by Sony Picture Classics. So Mm -hmm. there was no big, you know, there were producers who were involved and who were giving notes, but I think Mari had, you know, she was able to make her vision the way that she wanted to do it. I think, you know, as soon as there's more money involved and there's studio investment, you are beholden to people and you do have to make sacrifices here or there or at least justify the reason you're choosing to do certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, I think part of it was, I'm going to come in really early with a lot of ideas and like a clear vision of like, this is sort of the palette of sounds that I'm playing with. You know, it's piano, it's brushy drums, it's maybe a little bit of horn, upright bass, you know, sort of give, give them something concrete that they can, used to sort of envision a bigger picture mm-hmm. um, and I think that you know we the the idea was sort of like, okay, we're gonna let you run with this, but prove it a little bit hmm. you know because it's not I don't think that that's a conventional way to approach scoring you know a Melissa McCarthy feature mm-hmm. in general of saying, yeah, I think we're gonna do like a skeletal, jazz combo that's not like the sexiest (laughs) (laughs) the sexiest approach to making uh, film music so Mm -hmm. I think that there was maybe some reticence on the studio's part to commit to the idea but it's one of those things that like you kind of just have to do it on faith Mm -hmm. and just know that the vision is going to come together and if it didn't come together then you know I mean I would have been I would have been out a little bit of my out of pocket expenses that I spent to get those people in the studio and to get it made but to me it was worth taking the risk because I knew that I wanted a human element to the score and I couldn't do it with MIDI instruments mm-hmm. I had to get these real people who I knew were these great New York studio players and, and, you know, versatile people who just have that real kind of hungry New York musician vibe Mm -hmm. and, and get those demos recorded with real people playing just to sort of show that like this can take this movie from this one place to another place.
0: That's really interesting. I think that, excuse me, I think that it's, it's cool that you were able to bring in people that you knew to start to fill some sort of a, not a gap, but like um, maybe somewhere where you weren't as knowledgeable, like you said. You had to go and like dig into some roots from high school and stuff there. Um, Right. I'm curious how much music you wrote before those demos were created.
1: Um, I had probably written about like four or five distinct pieces. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something also that I feel sort of changes uh, as you get to a higher higher studio level. Um, you know, the way I did Can You Ever Forgive Me was also, like, I know the vibe of this drummer, Brad Wentworth. Mm-hmm. I want to just get him in the studio, and I'll feed him these demos, and I'll let him sort of improvise a little bit, and we'll see what comes out. Um, and I had this wonderful piano player, Aishiki, who just had this really wonderful touch. These are both people who I kind of met right when I moved to New York in the context of playing with bands, but I just knew that they had like the feel that I wanted. Um, so I probably hit the studio with the two of them with maybe four or five written pieces that I had sort of demos of. and we sort of played around for a couple of days and especially with Brad I sort of just let him go and said you know try this this way or that way and I I was able to sort of unpack all the materials that we recorded over the next week or so and go ooh there's a interesting drum feel here maybe we can spin this out into a different cue mm-hmm. and oh this piano idea here that we've got is triggering An idea like, oh, cello would sound so lovely on top of this. So for Can You Ever Forgive Me, that's sort of how it worked the whole way through. And also for other composers out there, um, it was like when they hired me, it was like a package deal, meaning this is your fee. Go do it. So I was Mm. on the hook for all of the production costs from musicians to studio fees and, and all that.
2: Wow, Um,
1: So to me that was like I'm just going to get in the studio I know that these people are capable Let's see what we get Mm -hmm. And then I would sort of unpack And untangle and edit And recompose And it was sort of a back and forth of like Let's go in, let's come out Let's see what we get, let's evolve Um, Hmm. So it was a really interesting process And that kind of goes away In the in the bigger budget uh, movie level, especially when it's not a package deal and the studio's ready to pay for the musicians and ready to pay for the studio, you don't get to just pop in and out of the studio as much as you want. It's like, this is your day. Be ready Mm -hmm. to record everything today. Mm
0: -hmm. So that Uh, discovery is happening more on your own. uh,
1: The discovery of, of... how should this cue go and, mm-hmm. and where can we take it? Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff has to, be, has to be very, very meticulously sorted out, especially in the context of playing with union musicians. You know, their time is so valuable. Mm-hmm. You cannot ask for them to improvise. That's like a big no-no that I learned very early on mm-hmm. in the process of uh, making the most recent movie that I did. Um, so, yeah, it's a different... It's a different ball game altogether, um, but yeah, I'd say that I've of the three features that I've done for my sister, they've been totally different workflows in terms of like the first one was me just totally learning how to do it as I went flying by the seat of my pants.
0: And performing the one, performing yourself, correct?
1: Yeah, and doing mm-hmm. it all. I mean, it was like basically a bedroom pr- production. You know, I had my little Mm -hmm. studio bedroom where I would record myself playing guitar and playing keyboard and, and it was all sort of done in box, as they say, you know, it was, it was a lot of just in the computer manipulation. Um, and then for, can you ever forgive me? You know, I did have another engineer. I went to a studio in, in Bushwick to record most of the time. And I did some of the stuff in my home studio. Um, but it was a little bit Bigger of a production, um, but for that one, it was kind of like, all right, I'm still figuring out figuring it out as I go, but I am going to rely on sort of the personalities of these players to sort of give me inspiration, mm-hmm. and I I tried to stay like pretty fluid with with the way I was feeling about pieces because as I knew the edit was shifting, I just was learning to sort of be loose with my vision and and allow it to to go in sort of different directions, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think, I think my approach of like, okay, I have this studio that I like and a group of a few core musicians that I really like, and if I can sort of bounce back and forth from my home studio to the live, to the live uh, venue with them, I was able to sort of hit that mark in terms of like something that's tight, and accompanies the film well, but still really feels like New York human musicians playing mm. together. If that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then moving forward to a beautiful day in the neighborhood, um, was it a given that you were going to be coming along with your sister, or did she have to pitch you again?
1: Uh, again, there's, I mean. I, I really have benefited from the nepotism of having my sister's, my sister's career just take off and I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. For anyone listening, I, I do not deny that I have benefited greatly from my <laughs> luck and circumstance. Um, but that being said, I think that there is – the flip side of it is that everyone does look at me as like, okay, you're the little brother, like
0: mm. – what
1: can you do yeah. you know yeah so again with this with this a beautiful day in the neighborhood i think to me it felt like even more of a reach than can you ever forgive me because you know this is tom hanks it's tri-star the budget is bigger and the the sound would have to be bigger too yeah. i sort of knew like this, at this level of a, of a movie, it's not going to be a jazz combo. It's not going to be individual instruments that you're hearing necessarily. There's going to be some. There's going to have to be some really grandiose music. And not to mention, there was all of this. I knew that there was going to be a lot of Mister Rogers' music that we would have to recreate. So, mm-hmm. I immediately am like, okay, how do we do this? How is this going to work? Thinking about the people that I know. Thinking about. A friend of mine who I know who's more music literate than I am, who maybe could help me write the charts if we do go to orchestra. So I basically had a meeting at Sony where I didn't have to pitch music, I just had to sort of pitch myself
2: Hmm.
1: and, and sort of sit down with them and let them know that I'm someone who you can talk to and someone who will take notes and I also have really strong feelings about the work that I do and I have a really strong perspective for the way that I felt that the score for this movie could go as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I think that was a big part of me getting this job too, was that I've, I've grown confidence in my abilities and I was feeling very inspired by the script and the story and just imagining the movie coming together. This was before, had begun being shot or anything but again I had read the script and um I felt like I had you know a really strong perspective that I could bring so I think I brought that kind of confidence into the meeting and then there was there may have been a little bit of a period of me having to pitch some ideas Mm -hmm. but but I think it was it was sort of like a we're working on the paperwork, but you've got the job kind of thing. I was in that, I was in that like (laughs) kind of suspended animation feeling of like, in theory, you've got it. The deal isn't totally done. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I'm just like, again, it's just like, fuck it. Just let's get to work. Let's just start making the thing. Mm -hmm. So again, I started, I started working pretty early, um, to just sort of get things going and just sort of get my head around, what what were going to be the big moments in the film in terms of original score, and then what were we going to do to sort of honor the legacy of all that wonderful music that was in the Fred Rogers show, mm-hmm. you know? Because I don't know if you know, but you know, Fred himself wrote almost all of the music you hear on his show, mm-hmm. and then he had his band leader, Johnny Costa, who was like this amazing stride jazz piano player who would you know take his chords and extrapolate them out into these wonderful arrangements um so there was definitely a feeling of like oh we we can't mess this up we really have Mm -hmm. to pay homage to to the spirit of of the show so i think there was kind of that as i was going for this job it was a little bit of like a rocky Running up this, running up the stairs, kind of thing of like, okay, I'm pumping myself up here. I I know what I have to do to get this, to get this done. Now let's get in shape. Kind mm-hmm.
0: of. Did you? Uh, what kind of research did you do, um, for for this film? Did you go and watch a bunch of his old programs, or did you well, kind of dissect I, I, those chords at all, or?
1: I did. I did a big like YouTube dive through just old Mr. Rogers clips and specifically focusing on a lot of the music and, and going through and, and especially the songs that were in the script, like seeing how he performed them. Um, I willfully avoided, I don't remember the name of the doc, but the Mr. Rogers doc, I was like, I can't watch
0: that. I think that it's happened. won't you, won't you be my neighbor. Is won't that you the...
1: be my neighbor. Yeah. I was like, don't watch that. Don't get influenced by the music <laughs> in that. But I ended up going and, and seeing a lot of the clips of him speaking to Congress and everything. Mm. And then um, the Fred Rogers Foundation in Pittsburgh was very supportive of this film from the very beginning. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, and I mean, it was just so invaluable, the resources that they had and um, So they also have, like, wonderfully maintained archives of everything, including, like, Fred's original sheet music that he wrote by hand for a Mm. lot of the music. (laughs) Um, So we had people there who were pulling these, like, incredible relics of things for us. Mm. And then at the same time, they were giving us, you know, video clips of, the film starts with Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers doing, you know, the song we all know and love, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of went through as many episodes from the different eras of the show to get a feel for how they perform the song. And interestingly, they never did it the same way twice. You know, it was, mm. it was kind of a big part of the challenge of, of dissecting this music and how do we recreate it faithfully. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, his musicians, Johnny Costa was this like incredible jazz improviser. So, you know, one episode, they do it with almost like a Latin kind of samba feel. (laughs) And then another episode, it's like a little bit slower. And then Mm -hmm. the next one, it's really fast. And he is shredding on the piano, just over the vocals. So, I kind of, you know, went back and forth with the editors and Mari and sort of was like, you know, there's we really have to pin down how we're going to do this and I think the best way to do it is to go into the 1997 archives take a few versions of the way they performed it then, because that's when the movie was set and you know, we'll just try and really faithfully recreate exactly what they did because again, in this sort of bigger studio environment you can't just get a Johnny Costa type player to come in and start improvising a million ways Mm -hmm. because then you've got you know legal issues in terms of well then this person technically wrote music and are contributing as a writer it just complicates things um so essentially what we did is we picked a few different versions of each of the original songs that we were going to do and we just very diligently copied it to sheet music, every single note. And then we had our music editor set up Pro Tools sessions where he essentially mapped out exactly how the tempos would shift hmm. as they played. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really surgical. It was really like we had to dissect it. I, I ended up having a uh, Mr. Rogers sound-alike voiceover artist come to my studio and record all the parts. So the idea was that we would send these materials to Pittsburgh so that before the shoot happened, we could get Tom Hanks in the studio there. Mm-hmm. And he would have the original versions as they were performed by Fred Rogers on stage. And then we had a carbon copy of the piano played by our wonderful Piano player Randy Kerber here in LA. And then he also had a track with a vocalist who was, you know, doing his best attempt at sounding exactly like Fred Rogers. So that then they could go in the studio in Pittsburgh, he could hear the original, and he could, you know, then make his best attempt. And if he wanted to hear the isolated vocal. So it was a really interesting process. And I definitely could not have done it alone either. So that's mm-hmm. one of the benefits of of a bigger picture is, you know, there's a team of people, there's a music editor and music prep department. So it was a really interesting puzzle that at first blush was like, oh, how the hell are we going to do this?
0: (laughs) It seems like it would be very daunting to get, to sit down the first day and say, what do we do? It was. I
1: mean, it was when I, when I really started going through the archives and just realizing like, oh, this is not, a normal piece of music or a normal way of performing because also his his players would be off to the side watching him perform and sort of speeding up and slowing down based on where he is in in his walk if he's over here about to put his sweater on then we got to get to the b part and oh he's sitting here and he's changing his shoes we we need to slow down a little bit to give him time to get his shoe Mm -hmm. into his hand so it was it was a real puzzle.
0: That's so cool. Um and really like it's not something I would have guessed. I suppose I mean I used to watch the program when I was a kid, but I don't know if I ever noticed that it was different every single time.
1: Yeah, I mean it was I think the way that they made that show was live, you know, it was mm-hmm. live and it was very few takes of things and I think you see that in the film as well. The way that that Fred worked was very real, you know, he he wanted to have he wanted to give human performances to his audiences. There's not a lot of cuts in between scenes. there's long stretches where he's performing. and his musicians kind of had to keep up with him as well. <laughs> um, so yeah it was it was a bit of a challenge that
0: that's fun. what um what did you in, insofar as the original music in the film, uh-huh. um how did you get started with that? I know we are talking about um you know going what uh, his composer would do um mm-hmm. in dissecting his uh chords that he would use etc did you do anything similar to that
1: well there was so kind of the uh the series of the way that the work kind of went was basically last summer i had this like flurry of activity doing all of this fred roger's music and then the actual shoot happened i again flew out to Pittsburgh and was able to be in a scene in the movie, playing in a band, in the Mm -hmm. wedding band, which was really fun. Um, And then, so there was this stretch of the shooting where then I kind of had a chance to conceptualize where do I want the score to go. Um, And for me, unlike Can You Ever Forgive Me, where I was thinking like, okay, all of the source music is going to be jazz. Let's make the score sort of live in that same world of being... You know, kind of on the same plane. This one, it was. I felt like I'm inspired by the jazz combo feel of the Mister Rogers, uh, like band. Mm-hmm. But I I knew that the music had to be bigger and in some places darker and a little more emotionally complex and nuanced. So mm-hmm. I sort of was thinking, let's take this jazz structure and definitely very piano heavy and see kind of where we can spit it out. Um, And I was kind of given the blessing um, from Sony early on to pick and choose little melodies or fragments of Fred Rogers pieces that I could then go and incorporate into the score. That was something that I think we all kind of had the idea simultaneously. Like, it would be fun to take the melody from it's you, I like da,
2: da, 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 da.
1: like it would be fun to put that on top of original score hmm. if we can, <laughs> you know, so then there there was that element of it too of like let's take a few of these kind of iconic Mr Rogers melodies and let's let's see where we can sort of pepper them into the score as well, and then, as far as the way the the score came together, it was rooted in that. Um, sort of jazz world, but we did end up having, you know, a, an orchestral day with a 31 piece orchestra. And we had a few sort of, you know, uh, individual sessions with, you know, this like incredible jazz flautist in LA yeah. <laughs> and a lot of sessions with, um, you know, just a piano player. Uh, and then I, I was able to convince Sony to fly out my same drummer from Can You Ever Forgive Me, Brad. Okay. Oh,
0: cool. um,
1: um, so that was another thing of like, you know, he's got this really good f- kind of shuffly flavor that I think he could bring. So there were a couple cues that I was like, we need this guy just for the feel of, you know, he just has the energy for it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, it kind of came together in this, again, I I've grown to, to be very fluid with the way that I approach it, just cause I know things are going to change and shift, but It was kind of like, it makes sense to have the Fred Rogers world of music be a nexus and have it be something that we call back to here and there. But let's Mm -hmm. see where else we can go with the score and and see the moments where we can make it a little bigger and darker and more orchestral.
0: Is there ever, or in any of the films that you've worked on, has there ever been a moment where that flexibility kind of becomes a little bit more rigid and you kind of are like, no, it needs to be this for this reason.
1: Well, I mean, don't get it twisted. I'm an artist and I am (laughs) very sensitive about my work as any, as any artist would be. And I think that it's, it's both a blessing and a curse working with a family member um, because, you know, other directors might dance around telling you that you're missing the mark. Mm -hmm. I think with my sister, I have just such a good language for this isn't working. You need to push harder and it needs to be more whatever, you know, it's sometimes hard to articulate those intangible feelings that you're not feeling because of a piece of music. Um, but I think with my sister, uh, we have a good language to do that, and we're able to speak openly. And there are, you know, I pick my battles. Whether I'm working with her or other directors, if there's something that feels really important to me that I don't want to lose, I try to speak up about it. And there have been a couple of there have been a couple of moments um, on on this film where, you know, I've said I understand, you know, the cut needs to get shorter here, but it's important for me to preserve this moment of the music. So if we're doing an edit on this piece to make it shorter, let's preserve this 30-second section, and I'll find a way to tighten up the first third of it, or something like that. Hmm. So as, as far as being fluid and accepting that things will change, it's not easy. It's It always feels like a sacrifice or a compromise, but I just know that it's all with the goal of making a better film and I'm just a part of it. So Mm -hmm. that's the thing that I just try and keep in mind when I, if there's something that I feel strongly about that I know is going to have to be compromised in some way.
0: That's cool. Did, uh, does, does Mari ever give you examples of what she's thinking or are you involved so early that you're always just giving her stuff?
1: Well, Uh, With Diary, there was some music temped in. Um, With Can You Ever Forgive Me, I think there was maybe one scene where in order to cut it, they had maybe used a little bit of score or a piece of jazz music just because they were cutting and they wanted to get the pace right. But for the most part, I really have the luxury of, you know, having my demos in early cuts of the movie so Mm -hmm. that they're not getting that famous, you know, director Mm tempitis, getting attached to, you know, uh, a piece of music that I didn't make, which I think is really helpful for me too, because it allows me to see things from a, you know, a clear perspective. If you're not seeing an early cut of something to someone else's music, I think it allows you a completely, you know, tabula rasa view to just go wherever the muse
0: will take you. Mm-hmm. Um, w- when you sit down to write something new, what is, uh, and in, in not just something new, but anything that you're like actively working on, what's a typical day writing for you?
1: Uh, a typical day writing for me is like, it could be essentially all day long in fits and starts. Uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, I was working at a bar four days a week the whole time I was working on Can You Ever Forgive Me? So I did a lot of that writing between like 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Wow. I'd, I'd say now that I'm in L.A., now that I'm a dad, the way that I typically work now is I, I write almost everything on a nylon string classical guitar, the first guitar that I ever got when I was 11 Mm -hmm. or 12 years old. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I basically, you know, I have a spot on my back deck where I like to sit with the guitar and a notebook and maybe my phone to record, you know, little demos. And I sort of just tinker around. And then from there, I'll usually take... Things that I've, you know, little demos that I've I've recorded on my guitar, and I'll maybe drop them into Ableton, which is what I use for composing, and I'll see if I can maybe translate it to piano and maybe orchestrate it into something else. Um, but for me, I think more and more, my process is either you know sitting down with the guitar or sitting at the Rhodes keyboard, and maybe watching a cut of something if i have a cut to refer to and just trying to play with it in real time and see how what kind of feeling i can evoke um and then yeah it's just a it's just a series of demos essentially where yeah. here's my rough sketch here's it on piano here is here it is orchestrated a bit more so it's it's usually an evolution that starts with me sort of just goofing around
0: very cool. Um, do you have like um, go to composers or influences that you're looking to, uh, not necessarily in a temp way, but like as a getting in the mindset kind of thing? Because when when I write like screenplays, I will listen to specific scores or things from other films that are oh, like interesting.
1: what I'm to give you a feeling to um, get in that
0: like headspace.
1: Sure. You know, I don't really do that. I I think what I do more is I get really intimately acquainted with the clip that I'm working with. Hmm. And there's a thing of, like, you know, I just saw A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood at TIFF. And there's a thing of, like, the scenes that I've worked on, I know every beat of dialogue mm-hmm. exactly i've it's watched th- it music so many own. times i mean it is locked into my brain by the time the movie is mixed and on the screen it's like okay here's a seven minute scene that i scored i know every detail of the sound design just from going through it over and over and over again mm-hmm. i i'm like you know as i mentioned i was never like i'm gonna be a film composer so there are composers who i love I love Mark Mothersbaugh, you know, um, I love Hans Zimmer, obviously, (laughs) but I'm not I'm not thinking about their work when I'm setting down to work. I think the first thing that I'm trying to do is to like really acquaint myself with the clip in question Mm -hmm. and with the pace of it. And is there like what's the job of the music here? if it's you know if it's a scene without dialogue music is going to be doing a lot more heavy lifting it's going to have to be telling you how to feel um and then there's there's so there's that question of it too if it's like a conversational scene where you kind of have to dip around the the dialogue a little bit you you want to compose something that that it could stand on its own but that enhances the viewing experience without taking you out of the dialogue so mm-hmm. that's sort of where where i start and sometimes the first thing that i'll give to a director they'll say this is you know it needs to be more funny or more dark or or whatever
0: Mm -hmm. you mentioned going to tiff how was it watching the film with other people
1: it was totally surreal Mm -hmm. um
0: TIFF, it kind of has that a weird effect.
1: <laughs> I guess so. I, I had never been before. but oh, okay. I, what I've heard, I, I you know, I've been to, I went to Sundance with Diary, and I went to Ghent Film Fest, but what I've heard about TIFF is that the audiences are really generous and genuine. I don't know if it's a Canadian thing, but it seems like other festivals, sometimes it's sort of perceived as like, you know, it's like a social event. And this one's mm-hmm. like really about people who love film. So that was really special for us because we got to screen in this, you know, 1700 person theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and Do you recall really,
0: which one? Was it Princess of Wales?
1: Uh, <laughs> that might be the one. Okay. It it was the one that was on, I know that it's on indigenous land. Um, and they made a point to, there were some protesters outside and then they Mm -hmm. made a point to acknowledge that before the screening started. I don't know. It was such a blur to me. Like Mm -hmm. you could ask me details about any of that like (laughs) 24 hour period of being in there. And I would probably not be able to tell you, but either way it's, it was a huge packed theater. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the cast was there and Mari introduced the film. Um, and yeah, you really get a sense of how it's going to affect people. And, you know, theres I'm not going to give anything away about the movie, but the way it starts essentially is like a Mr. Rogers episode. So you hear the Cheles do the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you see the miniature Pittsburgh, and the camera zooms out. And when that sound and that visual came on the screen, there was like an audible, like, oh, like kind of Hmm. gasp moment of wonder, moment of nostalgia of, you know, like just being triggered to remember this wonderful show that all these people connected to. So for me, that was like really special and really reminded me like, oh, get in the moment here we're watching the movie here with an audience for the first time. This is, this is a big deal. Soak it in.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, can you speak to anything that's coming up for you?
1: Yeah. Um, so I actually just wrapped another, uh, indie movie score, um, for a Nicole Hollis Center produced film called Sophie Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really cool. It was just like, for me, I sort of, you know, got a call from the director, Jessie Barr, who's a first-time woman director. Um, she sort of knew my work and, and was like, I have this really little movie, and I really would love for you to be a part of it. Um, so yeah, I pretty much knocked out a score and an original song for that one in about six weeks, um, and that was just mixed hmm. uh, It was really fun as well, because I was able to have my niece, uh, OG Ghost Haze is her stage name, Isis Brown. Uh, She's an artist in California, and she performed the the song that I wrote that plays in the final scene of the movie. So that was really fun as well to get more family involvement on another movie. Um, And then coming up now, as far as the scoring goes, I'm sort of trying to figure out where I want to go with it, whether I try out maybe some TV stuff or look for another feature. Um, I'm also a family man. So my wife has a lot of uh, professional goals that she's reaching for. So I'm, I'm okay with having a little break for, for a bit too, to focus on helping, helping with the baby and, Mm -hmm. and helping her get her stuff done. But other than that, I also have, I, you know, coming out of a, a big movie, like there's a little bit of a decompression period as well. So doing an indie was nice and refreshing. Mm-hmm. I'm also have been working on a record, like a pop record. Cool. I was going
0: to jer- ask. Yeah, yeah still with some writing your own stuff. or...
1: actually, it's it's been funny. Like you know, the songwriting aspect is something that. I forget that I really miss hmm. um, you know writing lyrical music so it was cool when this indie movie came up and there was a scene where there was you know they attempt they attempt in a uh, like a pop song and I was like do you want like a, a song a real song with the singer she was like I don't know but maybe and it was kind of you know I felt kind of titillated to get back into songwriting <laughs> and then And then meanwhile, you know, some collaborators of mine from my, my band days, um, we just continue to just write little songs and send things back and forth to each other. So two of my dearest friends, John, uh, and Hector, who were in a band that I was in, in the mid two thousands called Wendy Darling. (laughs) Um, we just started cutting a record last week, actually. And John's based in San Francisco, uh, Hecky is based in Rosarito, Mexico, and they came to L.A. and basically had, like, a four-day slumber party at my house where we recorded, like, an eight-song record. So that's something else that's coming that's just been, like, a really fun break from the straight-ahead scoring kind of thing, too.
0: Very cool. Are you guys going to get to travel with that at all?
1: You know, we have no idea what the and goal of it is and, mm-hmm. and if we would think about taking it to a, to a live uh, performance kind of thing but mm-hmm. it's definitely in the realm of possibilities um, I think it's just fun for us to feel like we're just making something that's just for us and just for fun too mm-hmm. with, with kind of no pressure but we'll definitely release it and, and promote it a little bit.
0: Very cool well um, Nate if, if people want to go to follow you Um, or listen to your music, where can they go?
1: Um, you can go to my slightly out of date website, (laughs) which is nateheller.squarespace.com. And maybe by the time this is up, I will have put some more material up there.
0: (laughs) One thing at a time.
1: One thing at a time, you know, first let's make sure we got some milk for the baby and then, (laughs) and then we can make sure that we get some new score clips up there
0: by all means well um, Nate thank you again for joining me this has been awesome very enlightening um, to talk to you about scoring and your process and um, and thanks again uh,
1: it's my pleasure it's been it's been fun chatting with you too
0: hey guys just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website www.hmdfilms.com but you can find us on Facebook and most importantly you can find us on iTunes where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe thanks have a great week